Hello and welcome to Public Sector Perspectives, ideas and insights about the public sector during the COVID crisis. I'm Nick Basto from IPA Victoria. When you work for one of Victoria's emergency services, you have to expect the unexpected. But a pandemic creates a very different sort of challenge for an emergency service whose mission is a safe, secure and orderly society. In this episode of Public Sector Perspectives, we look at the impact of COVID-19 on Victoria Police and how they responded as a public sector organisation. Beyond the coronavirus enforcement squad and dealing with non-COVID-related crime, how do you shift one of Victoria's oldest and most important public sector services into a new way of working and do it quickly? Our guide in this story is Susan Middleditch, who's Deputy Secretary for Corporate and Regulatory Services at Victoria Police. Part of that role means she's responsible for internal services at Victoria Police, everything that's non-police operational, and the type of services that would be familiar to most public servants. But she's also a conduit between police and government. Although they're one of the most fundamental public services provided by government, traditionally police have not been close to the centres of government. So part of Susan Middleditch's role is to be a link to departments like Premier and Cabinet, Treasury and Finance and Justice. TV and film have given us all an image, even if it's caricatured about the work that police do. But I ask Susan Middleditch to begin by giving us a picture of Victoria Police as an organisation. VicPol is actually a pretty large organisation. I think outside of maybe DHHS and, and hospital and health services, probably the largest. So around, you know, 24, 1,000 employees right across the state of Victoria. Um, about, you know, 16,500 of those are sworn members, so members in uniform and around, you know, sort of 4,000 uh, VPS staff. Um, that doesn't add up to 21,000, I understand, but, you know, an organisation like that moves um, size fairly quickly for that sort of the... And I would imagine it's a it's also it's also an organisation that's quite distributed around the state, obviously. Um, all across the state, I think we have something like three hundred police stations across the state. Um, you know, yeah, uh, as you would expect, we have members in you know, every small town or close to small town that you could probably think of. By definition, emergency services are designed to respond to the unexpected, mm-hmm. but. Do you remember the moment when the size of the organisational response that you were going to have to make to the COVID crisis became clear? Where were you and do you remember what happened? Uh, It's really interesting because you think it's not that long ago, but it seems like an awful long time ago, doesn't it? But I do remember uh, executive command meeting. So executive command is our chief commissioner and the deputies. Um, I remember a Saturday morning meeting that Graham had called, I want to say maybe the beginning of March at some stage. And um, I was actually off hiking for the day. So I was out near Macedon somewhere um, with earphones and a phone, you know, doing my meeting from Macedon. Um, And the conversation was all about COVID-19 and our response and what we needed to do and how we were going to run this organisation when we couldn't come into the office and and really trying to prepare for that. And I think that was probably the first time that I sort of sat back and went, actually, I think our world's about to change. 
Do you remember what the first thing you actually sort of did in response to that meeting? Uh, oh, well, obviously, from an executive command perspective, our first and foremost, um, you know, responses were to the operational responses. So what were our police officers going to have to do? Um, how on earth, you know, the Premier, I think on that Monday was when he announced the state of emergency, state of health emergency, first time ever we've had a state of emergency. Um, so what was it that we were going to have to do in a state of emergency that was different to the state of disaster that we'd had for bushfires? Um, and and where in bushfires, I guess we were primary, whereas in this health is primary and we're secondary. So how do we deal um, with a response to community in terms of keeping community uh, safe um, through this and it was very much an unknown and at that point um, Nick we were meeting from there on in daily so that we could work out day by day because uh, you know the the sands were shifting that quickly. In an emergency people focus on the you know legitimately on the external the external service provider what are you know what other what are what are police in uniform going to have to do around the state? It's easy in that situation to forget about, I suppose, the internal capacity that has to be spun up quickly yeah. to support that work. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering what the first, what what were the, some of the first sort of bits of the internal puzzle that you started to pull pull together to so that you so that all that external service could actually happen. Yeah, so I suppose, you know, that's where, you know, my role and I come into, you know, our executive command um, break up because, you know, I am not an expert in policing operations. And of course, we've got, you know, uh, amazing um, police and police executives on that that can do the policing operations. But um, I think for me, you know, our, our first concern is obviously the health and safety and well-being of our members we were very mindful of the fact that we had just come out of bushfires. So we already had a very, um, you know, weary uh, workforce. And now we were about to ask them to, you know, turn around and, and help the state through another crisis. And a crisis um, where we didn't know um, what the cause and effect was. So we didn't know at that point how people got this virus. Um, we didn't know, you know, whether our members were going to be safe, for example, doing um, breath tests um, through booth buses. We didn't know whether they were going to be safe if they arrested somebody. Um, so certainly that, you know, the first, um, one of the first things from an internal perspective was, well, how do we ensure the health and safety of our workforce? And what do we need? What provisions do we need? You know, what other... PPE do we need, how are we going to get it, what our supply chains are like, et cetera. So there was a big um, a big piece of work about that. And then, of course, you know, with the coming weeks and the announcements by the Premier to say, well, look, we really need, need to reduce the amount of people that are moving around our state and are moving in and out of the city, we got very quickly then we had to start thinking about, well, how do we all you know, work from home and how do we ensure that we've got the technology to do that? Well, let's go to that mm -hmm. point because I guess that has been one of the major shifts in public sector workplaces has been this move to home. Now, how viable is that sort of shift for the police workforce? Um, so I think, I think there's probably two parts 
to your answer to the answer to that question i mean obviously from a operational policing perspective you know the cops that are out on the street and in stations etc cetera, etc cetera, um no there's a large proportion of our workforce that can't work from home you know you can't um catch criminals <laughs> by you know sitting here on a on a screen um but uh, conversely, what we have found is there is a large part of our workforce that can work from home and be extremely productive and efficient in what they do. And while we have proven that over the last you know, eight weeks or so that we've been doing this, um, you know, we did have to, I think like every other government agency, have to overcome a whole heap of things to do that. So we weren't ready to work from home. Not everybody in Victoria Police had a mobile device, um, a laptop or a Surface Pro or an iPad to work off. Um, our network was not going to, to allow for the traffic that we needed to allow. So, you know, our ICT area had to um, increase our network capacity by 400% um, to allow us to work from home. We had to, we've rolled out 8,000 devices in six weeks to staff to allow them to work from home. We have had to change um, processes that have been in place for 30 and 40 years that have been predominantly manual, shuffling bits of paper, um, to a way in which we can do that um, electronically. So the agility, um, you know, uh, people from outside of the public service often say that the public service is slow to respond. <laughs> Um, and I'm sure there's lots of public servants that have probably had those same experiences. Um, but in times like this, the public service can be very quick to respond. And, you know, we had parts of our business that were really changing their whole entire process in 10 days so that they could get people to work from home. I mean, one of the things that struck me is that police staff, I presume sworn and possibly unsworn too, need access to potentially very sensitive information how do you ensure the security of that information with more people working from home? How easy is it to stand up the sort of remote access to that secure information that police staff clearly need? I think probably, luckily, we already have some fairly, fairly tight information security policies in Bitpol, um, which are communicated very loudly and widely. And and I think that there is a very good understanding in Bitpol of the type of information that potentially we all have access to and the fact that, you know, the um, information that we do hold uh, is um, significantly confidential and should not, you know, and needs to be treated as such. So the culture in VicPol around information, privacy and security, um, notwithstanding that, you know, some people at some stages do stupid things, um, is fairly tight. So, um, you know, our ICT, of course, our ICT area um, promoted those policies again. We put in, um, again, internal policies about how we share um, documents and how we share that information. And look, and, you know, we never closed off uh, our offices to people. So if they need to go in, they can go in. Um, of course, we... We said if you can work from home, you should work from home. But if you need to be in the office, you should work in the office. So we didn't do a, a total shutdown because, of course, in a operational policing business, you can't just shut down the office. Yeah. 
one of the uh, things that some uh, people I've heard some leaders express is that in working from home, especially when you're in sub when you're working in areas that are kind of can be confronting, that people have lost that sense that your home is a refuge from your work and that if you then bring that material into your work into your home you are sort of losing that sense of refuge from what can be quite confronting uh, issues and decisions that have Mm -hmm. to be made I'm wondering if that's anything that you've seen in in your work Uh, at the beginning of this we did stand up well we did heighten our uh, well-being services um, across VicPol VicPol um, I would say has ex- exceptional wellbeing services um, for a government organisation, uh, and so we did um, we did heighten those because we realised that that yes, people were going to be disconnected from their workmates and their team, and disconnected from the people that understood what it was that they do every day. Notwithstanding the fact that you know, like many other government agencies, we also have uh, people that are um, vulnerable, they either, you know, they may live by themselves um, and so therefore work is a real social activity for them. They may be um, in a domestic violence situation and so therefore work is a sanctuary for them. Um, so, you know, and again, that's one of the reasons why we didn't close down, you know, our offices so that people could still reach out into work if that was their sanctuary and they can still access um, people and services and, um, you know, uh, just, you know, just friendships and connections with people to allow them to, to work through this. You talked about corporate services and, and clearly they're the areas that sort of have to spin up the internal changes that need to mm-hmm. support the external community facing service changes. Um, and you talked about how quickly that had to happen. Looking back on it, what do you think were some of the impediments to making those changes? Do you think, is it a technology, sort of the technology change? Is it the sort of the change in systems and processes? Is it actually a shift in sort of attitude or risk aversion? What is it, do you think, looking back, that was the biggest Im- impediment to making those shifts? Um, that's a really interesting question because, you know, if I think about traditional ways in which the public service goes through um, changes or change management, you know, we normally have a well thought out um, process and project and change management plan, etc. And this time we didn't have any of that, which I actually think helped in some respects to get us to do it, to do it quickly. I think if I was going to say anything, you know, I think one of the impediments is um, or was the fact that obviously before you would make any change or make any decision, you'd really like to know all the facts and that if we put this in place, then that's going to stay in place for a period of time. Um, And because COVID-19 was changing so quickly, and because, you know, the day after you'd made a decision, you'd have more information. We were changing things, you know, sometimes three or four times in a week. So I think the impediment was often um, not risk aversion, but almost uh, wanting to know that that was going to be a solid decision when we really actually couldn't 100% know that that was a solid decision and we might have to change something afterwards. 
let's go back to that issue of um, contingency planning just for a second. Yeah. Like, um, without getting into trouble with contingency planners, um, generally, what, what is it that the, the planning the planning process actually inhibits? Do you think? Why is it that in the in the moment you actually do better? Uh, think uh, and look, you know, I'm a planner. I, I love a good plan. Love a good plan, love a good contingency, love to know, you know, where I'm going and where I'm going to get to and at what time. Um, so I'm, I'm all for, um, for planning and planning projects properly. I think what we have found in this current circumstance is that we're not overthinking anything, that we're going by our gut. And at the time, that the gut is good enough. It's good enough to get us going. It's good enough for us to start something new and we need to put aside everything else and give, and give something a go. You know, we often, we often talk in the public service about, you know, wanting the ability to, um, you know, uh, uh, fail fast and fail safe. Um, this has given us that opportunity to try something and if it fails, we're failing fast and we'll move on to something else. But I guess not failing, not necessarily failing safe is the great challenge for, for a place like Vic, Victoria sure. Police. Of course, but this, this, um, but this has given us an opportunity to try something and very quickly catch it before it fails and then move on. Um, whereas, you know, with, a, with an organisation like mine, um, there may be, you know, in normal circumstances, you know, you might want to wait until you've got every piece of information that you possibly can to 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 try something. Um, and argue, I'd argue that actually you never have every piece of information that you could possibly want. My guess is that Victoria Police probably still has a, a strong sort of command control culture within it. Um, given the nature of the organisation itself, it wouldn't be wouldn't be surprising. Um, what challenges have there been around managing teams remotely? This is a, an issue, I guess, that's come across in a lot of public service workplaces where you suddenly are managing staff who you can't really see um, and your contact with them is all virtual. Yeah, I, I, I think that's really interesting. And, of course, you know, uh, um, you're most people looking uh, from the outside looking in towards the police um, service would say it's a fairly strong command and control and um, I have absolutely no doubt that in VicPol, when we need command and control, we can do command and control really well. But one of the things that um, the current Chief Commissioner, Graham Ashton, has always done through his um, time as Chief is to enable his executives to do what they need to do and run their part of the business. Um, and so that has brought in a culture at our executive level of, of very much one of autonomy and autonomous decision making and as graham would say you know confident humility leadership by confident humility um which means that arguably uh unless we're in a operational um situation it isn't actually as command as control as what you might think i think though that leading teams remotely has been difficult for everybody um, you know, we talk about leadership and, and we know that uh, good leaders are good leaders because of the connections that they have with their teams. 
um, because of those personal connections and the and the collaboration and the getting people together and the ideas generation and sharing and the information sharing, et cetera. And that's all done. You know, good leaders do that through a very personal way of doing that. Um, and of course, it's much more difficult to do that when you're talking to a screen. Um, and so, you know, I think the leading remotely part of it has been tricky for, for everybody. Um, and it was something that quite early on that I wrote um, out to my managers around leading remotely because it was something that, you know, that I was finding tricky. I was going, okay, so how do I best lead, you know, my team remotely? So I sort of penned some thoughts and, you know, sent them around and said, look, you know, you guys might have some more ideas and please add to this list. But, but um, you know, here's some thoughts about leading remotely about, um you know, the ways in which we can, you know, keep connecting with one another, the, you know, idea of still having those Friday afternoon 4pm drinks or the 10am, you know, coffee meeting on screen where you don't talk about work, you just, you know, get online and shoot the breeze. Um, Do you think this experience will have changed the way you, you lead? I think that, I think what it has done for me um, is reminded me of the importance of speaking to my whole entire portfolio more regularly. Um, and I think as you get, at, as you get more senior um, in organisations and particularly as you get a bigger team, you can lose that ability to connect with the whole entire portfolio. You know, when, when you've got, you know, 60 to 80 people, that's reasonably easy to to connect with that. You can get them all in a room or all around a, you know, a kitchen facility. Um, when you have four, five, 600, that's much more difficult. And so for me, it's been, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, the ability and the time to converse with my whole entire portfolio in a different way. Um, and I think that's been that's been valuable for me as a leader, and you know I think it's been valuable for them as well. Looking back on it uh, from an organisational perspective, not from a police service delivery perspective, are there things you would have done differently? Uh, I think personally, I I would have probably two things I would have done differently. I would have started talking to my portfolio much earlier than I did. Um, and I didn't do that because I guess I was, my time was being sucked into the executive command level government connection. And so I was focused up and out rather than being focused on in and across. Um, and of course that was, that was slightly detrimental for my portfolio because they weren't getting any messaging from me and I'm talking, I'm talking, you know, literally that first week or two um, while we were all trying to work out <laughs> what it was that we were dealing with. So um, I would do, I would certainly talk more quickly to my portfolio. Um, and, and the second thing that I would do, and, and, I, and I think this comes through back to leaders being personal uh, when you're on a screen, it's easy to withdraw. Um, and I think, you know, when you're 
in those early days of uh, emergency or crisis situation and you know as executives we're working 14 15 16 hours a day it's easy to withdraw um and i certainly did withdraw you know through that time trying to work out my own feelings to COVID 19 where um you know and how that affects you know my family etc etc um and i probably uh, and reflecting on that i probably should have stayed more connected to my team because if as i withdrew they withdrew um and so why when i wasn't talking about you know i'm struggling about how to lead all you guys remotely they also weren't talking about the fact that they were struggling in leading their teams remotely so when i when i did start to re-engage and say actually you know what i'm really struggling with this leading remotely and you know so I've been pondering it. It sort of started that conversation again about, yeah, well, I've been struggling a bit with that too. I guess we're starting to, if not see a post-COVID world, see a sort of COVID normal world. Mm-hmm. Uh, what sort of changes, internal changes to systems and processes and attitudes would you hope to keep in place in the sort of, in the COVID normal world? Well, I think that, you know, the good thing is that the certainly the um, very manual processes that we had to change very quickly, um, uh, that they'll be gone forever in Vicpole because <laughs> it'll it'll be, you know, on my grave that they come back again. Um, so, you know, so I think that there's some benefits there. Um, I think that the public service generally has been talking about flexible ways of working and working from home for many, many years. We have now absolutely proven that we can do it effectively. It's sufficient. It makes people more productive, uh, really gives people work-life balance um, and allows them to do what it is they need to do outside of work um, and balance all of that. And I don't think we will go back to, or I hope that we do not go back to every single person in the office for five days a week and 40 hours a week. Um, so I do think that we will see a continuation of flexible work arrangements now for a long time to come, probably forever. Maybe finally, you, could you describe a moment that happened over the last two months that you think really captured your organisation's response to the COVID crisis? I think probably the moment I I would describe, and it comes back to sort of the safety and wellbeing aspect of Victoria Police, um, and certainly you know, some of the comparators uh, internationally with police forces. So very quickly on, as I said before, you know, we were keen on... And, and committed to ensuring all of our staff's health and safety. And we put into place very early on priority testing for Victoria Police members. So, um, you know, if you had symptoms, et cetera, et cetera, you could go to a hospital or a GP and you could, you could get testing. Um, but for police members, we introduced with the health providers that we could have priority testing for our members um, so that, you know, if they were concerned, they could get their tests very, very quickly. And along with um, DHHS um, also introduced sort of emergency accommodation for people that didn't want to put their families at risk. Um, that has been hugely successful in terms of the 
amount of people um, who have actually been ill through this in VicPol. So when we first started doing our business continuity, we were working on the possibility, because this was the best health advice at the time, or even the probability that 40% of our staff would come down with COVID-19 and would be um, out of, you know, off, off, off duty for, you know, the 14 days of self-isolation. 40% um, of VicPol is a lot of police that, you know, aren't policing. And that was quite concerning. Um, at the height of our numbers, we had about 300, and this is at the height, quarantined. That was in the very early days where we were sort of getting everybody on holiday that had been overseas on holidays coming back from overseas. And so these were staff that had been on leave and had returned. And so they were quarantined. Um, we have had four positive, four positive results of a workforce of 21,000. Um, and it's because of the health and safety and the priority testing regime that we put in place very early. Um, and, you know, I think from an organisational perspective and from a business continuity perspective, if I was going to say, what's the one thing that kept us going? That was the one thing that kept us going. That brings us to an end of this episode of Public Sector Perspectives. If you missed the last program, it's with John O'Nicholas from the Wellbeing Outfit, and he discusses the challenges facing public sector managers who now have to manage their teams with everyone working from home. It's available on the IPA Victoria SoundCloud page. You can get in touch with Public Sector Perspectives via info at vic.ipa.org.au or via IPA Victoria on all the usual social media channels. And thanks for listening.